Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46 which reads something like a culminating text for our weeks studying the parables. The text seems to locate us in the future, at the time of the final judgment, but it's not just a different place on the timeline. The nature of the cosmos seems to have shifted, and maybe something in the nature of Jesus, too, after the resurrection. All of the overlapping groups that have been present in the parables, the wheat and the weeds, if you will, will be sorted into two distinct fates. On a quick read, the grounds for this sorting may not seem too high a bar. We must offer generous, loving care for the bodies and spirits and the dignity of our co-travelers on this earth. But how do we keep this care from becoming primarily an act of self-interest given the presence of those hellfires? Would that kind of motivation ruin it? And wait, did this text just say that we need to do this in every single instance without exception? The words of this text may feel familiar to you, but boy, are they a radical reorientation. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I'm okay. How are you? (laughs) Uh, I, yeah, I've been saying I'm okay enough mm. that yeah, like, like okay that. enough, like that's good. I'm okay enough. Yeah. We're like, Hendrix has this long, we, we put our spring break. I mean, the, so the reason that we do it is because Arkansas has a statewide spring break. And so we put our spring break with the statewide spring break. So everybody's on spring what break do you mean at the same time as there's a statewide spring kids. break? Like the state, what do you mean? I mean, like all the public institutions in the state take their spring break at the same time. So everybody oh, from like pre-K like to middle from school pre-K, to- That's really, why doesn't Georgia do that? <laughs> the university college system, huh. everybody. And so uh, so we do the same at Hendrix, but it means that, the, that our spring break comes like way past, not way past, but about yeah, two thirds of the way through the semester. Be. Yeah. Instead of yeah. halfway. Yeah. And so everybody gets super exhausted at the halfway point, which is when spring break sort of feels like it should come. And so yeah. we're in that little window right now where we're sort of like, it's like when you were running a, you know, a half marathon. And I, did I tell you this story? I used to be a runner, you know, and mm-hmm. then my very first 5K that I ran, it was like a loop trail. But at the very edge, like the very farthest point, farthest point of the loop, there was a spur trail. And the Aww. person directing the race got confused and directed Aww. everybody down oh, the spur. Bobby, that's a sad story. <laughs> so my first 5K, like I ran it and I ran 5K and like the, there was no, there was no finish line. And I was just like running through the woods and like, oh. <laughs> and finally I figured out like, oh, they misdirected the race. And so then I had to run. So my first 5K ended up being like 8K or something. Like 10 like miles. <laughs> yeah. So that's ah. the way it kind of feels to me right now is that like I've run the 5K part of the semester 
but I'm on a spur trail and the finish line is, no, is nowhere near. And so now That's I'm just like running on fumes. Beautiful metaphor. I really like that. Guess what happened the first time I ran a 10K? No, it did not happen again. <laughs> it did. It was amazing. The signage was confused. And so all the people that started out Fabi, what first, kinds of races are you running? <laughs> poorly organized ones. <laughs> <laughs> so my first 10K was like a 12K or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And then the, the speaker, the, um, the guy on the megaphone or whatever, at the end, they had like a local TV host come and like get everybody pumped up or whatever. And so I was finishing my first 10K. And I mean, it was long. Like it was, I was up in the probably close to 50 minutes or something. Like it was not a quick race, but I had also run like an extra mile. Yeah. And the, the guy, the, the local TV guy started making fun of me. He's, he's like, That's time to go terrible. home. Oh, no, no, no. Here comes another one. Did you punch <laughs> him like, with hey, all man. your leftover, like the runner adrenaline? Yeah. Into a I ran, fist yeah. fight with the news guy? I was so mad. I was like, if y'all had just like put your signage up correctly, because it wasn't just me. It was like, it was probably like 50 people who got confused and ran an extra little loop. Anyway, so those are my, those are my race, my first race stories. I don't know why I'm telling you those other than. But they are very good stories. They're good. Yeah. I don't have a lot of stories anymore that you don't already know. And so. And so we're really, we're digging deep, y'all. You're going to start hearing (laughs) all the stories. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm okay enough. That was oh, you point. are okay enough. You can run this extra spur. You've done it before. Bobby can yeah, do hard make, things. Don't make fun of me. I don't even get a spring break. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I sort of yeah. do because, I mean, my kids do. And so, like, even though my work doesn't stop, the reality is I have to take time off. I have to. And it's yeah. good to be forced. It is good to be forced to. Yeah. Oh, Bobby. We're reading from Matthew 25 today, which we also read from last week, but we're, we're picking up later in the chapter. Yes, and I'm trying to think a of, a clever, of way to, a clever way to connect it to 5Ks or exhaustion, but I <laughs> can't do it on the fly. So yeah. maybe in our concluding remarks, one of us will be able to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like the medal ceremony at the end of the 5K. You've run your race, you've come to the finish line, and now you either get a medal or you get cast eternal into the Eternal fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those two things. The eternal fire. Yeah. yeah. Which one will it be? We're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so our reading today is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Yes. Um, should we just dive right in then? I think so. Let's just, Let's do it. Okay, so I am reading from the NRSV as I usually do, and I will pick up in chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Okay, here, let's start with Amy's simple-minded questions. Is Jesus the son of man? Jesus is the son (laughs) of man, right? Yes. Yes, Yes. Jesus is the son of man. Okay. But this is not talking about now. 
Like this is set in the future, but it's Jesus who is saying it to them. Right. So it's a little bit confusing. And there's, I mean, there's a historical argument about whether the historical Jesus understood himself to be the son of man or not. And Mm -hmm. like, there's a whole conversation that one can have about that. But in the gospels, the way that we now have them, the way that it seems to work is the son of man is the way that Jesus talks about himself when he returns in his full glory after the resurrection. Mm. So there's like the Jesus of the here and now, and then there is the son of man who has been resurrected and elevated and then comes back as the, as the judge. Oh man, I have so many. I, yes, but I have so many questions about it, but I don't know that I think they might take us away from the (laughs) text a little bit. You want to try me? Well, I, I guess my question is like, is that sort of a matter of like a certain time has come or is it a matter of something essential about the nature of Jesus has changed once the resurrection has happened? Or is it like a little bit of both of those things? I mean, it seems like it's not just saying something, something has changed about I don't know, either about Jesus or about the cosmos, it yes. seems, in order yes. in order to be thinking about this time in the future. Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's the answer to that is both. Like you said, mm-hmm. either Jesus or the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I think it is both of those things mm-hmm. have changed, or at least both of those things have entered a new time. And it's like they've changed each other in some Yeah. Ways. Okay, sorry, continue. Yeah. I'm learning. I'm listening. No, 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 that's really helpful. The, <laughs> you know, the the reference to Son of Man seems to be Daniel chapter 7. If you remember that text in Daniel 7, it's that one where the beasts rise out of the sea and they're it's doing so all weird. this terrible stuff to people. Yeah. And Daniel goes on to tell us that those beasts are the empires of the earth and they, you know— kill people and stomp on people and do all these terrible things. In Daniel chapter seven, then God comes as the judge and judges those empires, judges those beasts and takes away their authority. And then in chapter seven, verse 13, I'm reading in the common English Bible. As I continued to watch, I suddenly saw one like a son of man. The the CEB says one like a human being, but the language there is son of man. Coming with the heavenly clouds, he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All people and nations and language will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. And so the New Testament understands that figure in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, as Jesus. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they understand Jesus as the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And so what we have here in this reference to the Son of Man, to the throne, to the judgment, is the resurrected Jesus being given the full authority of his kingship over all the empires of the earth. And so where up until now, you know, we've been talking since the very beginning of Matthew about these overlapping kingships. Uh, The Magi came and said to King Herod, where is the king of the Jews? We've been talking about the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. Up until now in Matthew, those two things have been overlapping as they were in Daniel, the kingdom of God kind of in the background, the empires of the earth marauding all over the earth. 
at the moment of judgment, there is a separation, right? The, the, king, the kingdoms of the earth are judged and done away with. The kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness and the keys are handed over to Jesus, who is the king. And so Jesus has changed because he is now the heavenly figure who is in, in the fullness of his reign, given power over the earth. And the world has also changed because the empires that have been sort of competing with the kingdom of heaven for power have lost their power. Like this overlapping kingdom Mm -hmm. thing is done at this Mm -hmm. final judgment. Mm -hmm. And the moment that we're seeing uh, described in Matthew 25 is that moment when it's all being sorted out at at the end of this sort of period of overlapping kingdoms. That's so helpful. It it does. And it's making me think of the text we read about the the wedding guest who's not wearing his wedding robe. Yes. That that we were, you know, on the one hand, it was like, how could he possibly have been wearing his wedding robe? This is crazy. And we talked about how, like, there's not there's not a third. There's not another option anymore. Yes. Like there was a time in history where it's like you can live into the kingdom of heaven, live into God's kingdom on earth, like according to the the rules that God has set before us since the beginning of the Torah. Yes. Or you can live according to the rules of the empire, which will make you miserable and you really shouldn't do it, but you can. Yes. And that is no longer an option. That's so important, Amy. And, you know, not just in that parable, but we've been seeing all the way through these parables of things growing together, the weeds and the wheat together, the foolish and the wise bridesmaids together, the people in the banquet together, the one wearing the, not wearing the clothes and these parables of separation at the end, like the weeds and the wheat get separated. The Mm -hmm. bridesmaids end up closed out. The guest gets kicked out. And so this story here in 25, the story of judgment I think is the culmination in in a sense of those parables of things growing, things living together and then being separated. And so, and this is the moment it comes on you suddenly, you've got to be ready for it. And now we're going to, now we're going to sort it all out. Yeah. Bobby, when it talks about the people gathering for this sorting, it it speaks about them at, Okay, this has nothing to do with anything, but I just have to say it because every time I read this, the image comes into my mind of people being sorted like at concentration camps. And I mm. I know that is not oh what's goodness. being referred to here. Like I know this has nothing to do with that, but it just I just can't not say it. It's okay. Just there. Yeah. There. Now now I've horrified everyone with that image, but that's the image that comes to my mind. I mean, it's an interest like, yeah. This is not that. This is not that. But also there is a separating of people that is happening here. Yes. And so that for life you know, and for death, basically. For life and for death. And you know, there seems to be here some sense that the separation is just. Yes. Whereas in the concentration camps it was right. random it was and evil. evil. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I think that image I the don't know. The gravity of it is real. Yes. And I think it should make us uncomfortable at some level. It should make us, yes, it should make us uncomfortable, certainly when humans put themselves in the position to do that. Yes. Sorting. Yes. Okay, but what I was going to say is it doesn't just say gather the people. Right. It says 
the nations will be gathered. Yes. And I wonder when you read that, Bobby, I guess, I mean, maybe the most basic question is why, why are we talking about the nations or, you know, in my mind, sort of to what extent do you read this as a text that is really thinking of each individual person versus people as part of a collective? Yes. How do you think about that stuff? It's a complicated question, and I, and I think it's an important one. The word that's used there in Greek, ethne, is just, I mean, it means the nations. And one could understand it as political entities, the, ruler, the rulers like the empires of the earth. Yeah. One could also understand it as a reference to Gentiles mm-hmm. in the way that Hebrew would say the goyim, right? Right, right. And I think we could understand it in either one of these ways. The only real difference in that moment is whether this story envisions Jews being included here. In, mm-hmm. in early Christianity, there was sometimes an understanding that there would be two judgments, a judgment of Jews and then a judgment of Gentiles. And they're mm-hmm. judged on different interesting criteria, maybe. And so... I think if you read it as the empires will be gathered, then maybe we read it as all the people. And if you read it as the Gentiles will be gathered, then we're thinking, okay, the, the judgment of the people of the covenant is some is already done or is over here someplace. And so now we're talking about people outside of the, the covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's important here, and it's really subtle in the Greek, and I, I mean, I missed it until I re- read Daniel Harrington's commentary, is that that ta'ethne is a neuter plural, but the next sentence, he will separate them from each other, is a masculine plural, altus. And so hmm. it's not that the nations are being separated from one another. Got it. It's that the people are being separated. Got it. Do you know what I mean? They're not being yeah. separated like yeah. Rome, you go over there, and Egypt, you go over there. It's the reference of the ones being separated is the people. Is individual. Not the, that, not the that's really themselves. interesting and helpful to me that it, that it, it, it imagines the people coming together sort of as part of the collective that they are part of, but ultimately being that, that doesn't carry the day. You know, it yes. does ultimately become a matter of individual people. Yes. If I have to put it together for myself, just like what's in my head, what I think this is saying is that all the world, everybody, all inclusive, is gathered before the throne and the people are judged individually. And this is, so it's not that Christians are being judged here or, you know, this is the judgment of the world. Everybody is going to get sorted in one of these categories or the other, as we've been talking about. You've got two choices, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the earth and everybody has that judgment. Yeah. Individually. Individually, right. It's not just that your your nation is going to be judged. That's the way that I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is an intense setup. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. It is there anything you want to say about the the sheep and the goats or do you think this is just like I don't know. Is, is there, does that have any particular resonance 
for you? Or, or is it just a way of saying that you're going to separate them? I mean, it's just a way of saying that you're going to separate them. But, but in the commentary work, I was kind of interested in this question because I, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time with sheep or goats. Mm. Although uh, my kid went to outdoor preschool at the local Presbyterian camp and they have sheep and goats. And so we, I did it for a year of my life. I actually, I spent time with sheep and goats and they did, they lived together and they just hung out together and it was great. But what I understand from the commentary work is that oftentimes sheep and goats were herded together. So Mm -hmm. the shepherd, the goat herd would take them out in a mixed herd and then they would graze together while they were out. And then when they brought them in, that sheep are woolly and therefore don't need to be kept warm. Mm. Goats apparently have Mm -hmm. different needs in terms of when they're back at home, they need Mm -hmm. to be kept warm in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or the fires of hell, one of of those things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, so I think that ancient people actually did this kind of separation of sheep and goats. And sheep were more valuable. Like they both have value, but the sheep were sort of the more valuable. And so they're going to get associated with the, with the good people here in mm. a second. Spoiler alert. But yeah, so, you know, this is another one of these metaphors that goes along with the weeds and the wheat. Like when you're out in the world on a daily basis, the sheep and the goats are all just hanging out together. Yeah. But when we come back to the final moment, then we have to separate them into their own categories. And so I think that's like, I mean, I... I don't know that there's anything profound necessarily about sheep and goats specifically, but that notion of mixed together and then separated, I think is. That's really, really helpful. That little bit of ancient shepherding knowledge you dropped on us. Yeah. Boom. Boom. I know. I feel kind of bad for the goats though. Like goats are like, I I like goats. You, if you like goats, Bobby, you can do goat yoga. Now that has a whole other like connotation. You're doing yoga with the wicked ones. You're oh, looking yeah. at me like you don't know what goat yoga is. Well, I think so. I was looking at you because like the notion that I could do goat yoga implies that I can do yoga, <laughs> which oh. um, I am not, <laughs> not the most flexible of people, but I, I have yoga here and there. Yoga makes me want to throw up. Oh, no. That's I know. Not that's Everyone's like, you look like someone who does yoga. And I'm like, really, really not. You don't want, no, I do not do yoga. <laughs> like, I'm literally, sure. it makes you nauseous? Yeah. It's like it squeezes oh. my organs in funny ways. I'm sure I'm doing oh, yeah. it wrong. If you just put a goat on in your In the booty. picture, that would probably <laughs> yeah. change things. Yeah. Make okay, it I don't know why I started talking about goat yoga. Oh, should we? <laughs> should we? They look so playful. Oh, because maybe you wanted to like redeem the goats. You can't redeem the goats, Bobby. You can't redeem. They're them going goats, to the eternal I mean, goats, fire. I just want to say, I, goats are people too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're moving on. You ready? Yes. Okay. Picking up in verse thirty-four. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, "Come, you that are blessed by my father." Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Okay. I'm going to start again with a simple-minded question. Yes. The king... I would have thought the king was God, but then the king, is the king referring to my father? And then the father would be God, so the king is also Jesus? That's the way that I read that, yes. So the king, so Jesus was called the king. The king is the son of man. Like the son of man is sitting on the throne. Yes. And okay. Yes. So son of man given the throne. Jesus already called king of the Jews by the Magi in Matthew chapter one or whatever that was. And so I think that's the image here. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one with the authority. And God is the one who is blessing. You don't it's look just, entirely no, satisfied. It's, it's not that I'm not convinced of that. It just is so interesting to me that in such a short span of verses— First, Jesus would refer to the Son of God, and then Jesus would refer to the King. And I'm just sort of thinking about what it, mm. like what it communicates to say, I'm sorry, I think I spoke, I think I misspoke, the Son of Man. Did I say the Son of God? You might have. I might have. Sorry about that. I meant the Son of Man. Um, I'm just thinking about what, I don't know, how, how it sort of frames the whole thing. Like once you say the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's like cueing us that, that that fundamental change in the nature of all things <laughs> has happened. Like the flip has been switched. Yes. And then once that has happened, that same person, that same being, sort of assumes this other title or this other role yes. or something like yes. that. Yes. Bobby, I was struck by the reference here to sort of like like the, the first things, the early days, the foundation of the world. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder, I don't know, if that if that phrase or the inclusion of that, I don't know, how does how does that how does that resonate for you? What are what does that mean to you that since the since the foundation of the world, the kingdom has been prepared? So I think it would be possible to read that as the people who are going to participate in this kingdom, like it mm-hmm. was prepared for you yeah. before the world began, as sort of a predestination thing, which is very near and dear to my own mm-hmm. Presbyterian heart. But I don't actually read it that way. The way that I w- would want to read it is since the beginning of time, there has always been this plan like the kingdom of heaven has always been present. The idea that the righteous have a special place where they will live with God has always been present. It's not that this is like 
the world up until now has just been a corrupt place. And then, and then there's heaven. It's that the sort of like subtle mixing of the kingdoms or this like this idea that God's kingdom was already present has been true always. You might not have always been able to see it because the, you know, the beasts out of the ocean are violent or whatever, but it's always been there. And if you've had eyes to see or ears to hear, then you've known that. And in this gospel, Jesus has been telling us that since the very beginning. So that's kind of how I read it. It's sort of an assurance to people on our side of the judgment, you know, like, hey, the, this place of the righteous already is there. It's been prepared. And so you can trust it. That's sort of how I put it together. What, what do you do with that? Okay, I have sort of like two different, two different like ideas or responses, I guess. And one of them, as as do all good things, starts with a question. <laughs> so the the phrase "foundation of the world," mm. this might this probably is a Greek question. I, I I wonder if it's like, do we mean like the time that the world was founded, like the founding of the world, the, like a gerund, or the foundation, like the foundation stone that is beneath the temple that keeps the waters of chaos at bay, like going back to this sort of ancient mythopoeic um, thread that you can find in the Hebrew Bible, but is kind of, is a little bit buried in the Hebrew Bible. The Greek there is katabole and the dictionary that I'm using defines it as creation of the world, beginning or foundation. And so that last term mm. foundation retains a little bit of the ambiguity. And I would have to actually just go back and do a yeah, word yeah, yeah. study and see how it plays out. But the, the CEB, like part of the reason that your interpretation didn't occur to me is the CEB translates this prepared for you before the world began, yeah. which is taking it which in Which is very different. Sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it may be that that's right. Although I'm still, I'm, so just to do sort of like this teaching on one foot, because I don't want to take us too far afield, but there is, you know, in the, in the creation story in the Hebrew Bible, the first one, Genesis 1, there is sort of this, this sense of like there were preexistent waters and part of what God's um, work was in the first chapter was to separate the waters from the waters and like create space where there could be something else. And, and it is easy enough to read the biblical text as though, you know, God just sort of said like, well, you know, that's done when, (laughs) when Genesis one is done, like chaos has been mastered. God is in charge. Everything is fine. But there are also these threads, you know, particularly we'll find them in the Psalms and in, and, you know, some other texts that suggest that it actually is sort of like an ongoing the struggle against the forces of chaos in the world is ongoing and it's not, it's not done, you know, like just like the mention of Leviathan. I don't know. There's, there's this idea that there is, there is chaos that is being managed in some way. And there's a, a tradition that, that the temple is like placed on this, like all the chaos has been pushed into the center of the earth and there's a stone on top of it and the temple's on top of the stone. Anyway, what I like about possibly bringing that into this is that once, like, <laughs> we're getting back into, like, oh, now there's a devil. Like, now there's a, right. 
you know, like we're getting back to the time where like there is a, a wicked force in the world that God has been battling and trying to keep at bay all this time, but is is real. Otherwise, it feels like it comes out of nowhere coming. I mean, I know it's present in the in the Jewish tradition sort of around that time. It's just not in the Hebrew Bible so much or not in mm-hmm. the earlier. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a long excursus, but um, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting to think about the moment that chaos is squelched for the time being yes. so that the world as we know it can exist. Yes. But it's, I shouldn't say it's always temporary, but it's not it's not just that it's done and stable and finished and we don't have to worry yeah. about those forces anymore. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. It reminds me of John Levinson's book about yeah. persistence of evil and Yes, creation and the persistence of evil, yeah. I think this text is saying it has always been that way. Yeah. And now is the moment where actually evil no longer persists. This is the moment where that mixing or the holding back is, is now actually is per- going to be permanent after this separation. I think that's what's happening. Yes. It, it seems to me like it's saying these things aren't going to co-mingle anymore. Right. Like there still is a, there is a devil oh, and eternal saying. fires. It's just. I see what you're saying. The realms that have been overlapping are yeah. no longer overlapping. Oh, I love that. I didn't. I understand what you're saying, though. And I, I love that. I think that's exactly right. It's not that they've been stamped out. They have been thrown out of the banquet. And they yeah. all hang out outside the banquet. Yeah. 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 Okay, I feel like we could talk about that forever, but we can't because we have other things that we have to talk about here. Okay, hungry... Thirsty, stranger, sick, naked. I'm putting aside prison. prison. I'm putting aside prison for a minute. I want to hold that for a minute. Why why are these the things? Like, why are these the building blocks? So I'm going to do that thing that I do that's probably annoying. But because you separated out prison, Mm. it makes me think that you had a reason to do that, which is an answer to the question you just asked me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to put it back to you. Why? What do you think those things have in common? Well, I was trying to go through and say like, okay, hungry, thirsty. I was trying to think like, which of these are really about sort of care for the body? Yes. And which of these are sort of care for the spirit or for dignity? Mm-hmm. The reason I put prison separately is one is that it seems to me to be the one that is most clearly care for the spirit, like care for the dignity, the humanity of the person, because it doesn't reference doing anything for the person. Mm -hmm. It's not let the oppressed go free. Yeah. Yeah. You're not doing it. You're not letting the oppressed go free. You're, you're just being with them. You're just being with them. But I think that this might be sort of a modern, a, a modern reading of, of this that wasn't at play then. But I think the inclusion of 
of visiting people in prison with visiting people who are sick raises the question for me, like, how does our judgment of people's decisions and whether what's happening to them is fair affect our view of their humanity and affect our willingness to support them in their humanity? Yeah. You know, whether that means human life in a body, care for their body, or uh, or their their spirit. I really, really love that, Amy. I, I got to a similar place, but very differently. And I, I like your, not very oh, Tell me, tell me, tell me. In a less nuanced way. I really love the way that you got us there. And so I just want, I just want to hold on to that. You know, the way that I have tended to read this is, as I read many things, which is systemically, which is mm. to say that the reason people are hungry and the reason people don't have access to water and the reason mm. people don't have clothing and the reason people are sick and the reason people are imprisoned is because society doesn't work as it should. And the reason society doesn't work as it should in a biblical framework is because we don't recognize one another as neighbors who need to be cared for both physically and spiritually and fundamentally just recognized as as human beings. And so what this text is doing is to say, you need to treat as human those people who have been treated by society as less than human. And that involves some physical things. um, And that also involves spending time with people. I really love the way you took that in prison. Uh, You know, in, in the ministry that I do, a lot of what we do is we spend time with people that not a lot of people want to spend time with. Mm -hmm. And there is value in that. That's not always clearly tangible. Like you could give money to those folks Mm -hmm. or to organizations that support those people. And it might do more good in a certain kind of sense than you hanging out and spending your time learning their story. Yeah. But there is something essential about the neighborliness of the neighbor and recognizing the inherent humanity of those people. And so I I think that's exactly right. That is so helpful to me, Bobby, because I think, you know, reading with the, again, with sort of putting aside the visiting people who are in prison, because I think that feels to me sort of like it really pushes, it pushes me past a sort of simple reading of, you should give food to people and give water to people. Like you can just sort of like check the box. Like, did you do it? Yeah. Which I, in my community, of course, these things are important. And I'm always pressing people don't just. Yes. A clothing drive is good. Do a clothing yes. drive, but don't stop at a clothing drive. Exactly. And you just helped me see how, um, how this text also says, says more than just do a clothing drive. Yes. But also do the clothing drive. But also do the clothing drive. That's real. Like our bodies are real. They are. Our body, my body is not shy about its needs. (laughs) And it is really hard for me to lead a a dignified and spiritual life when my body is in distress. And that just, that is how we're made. Yeah. So these people are getting some nice praise. (laughs) Yeah. But then they ask, they ask the simple question of like, wait, what? (laughs) When did we do that? I don't even think we ever saw you in that situation. Yeah. And then we get this really famous response 
when you when you mm. cared for all these other people, you were caring. All these other people who are part of my family, you were caring for me. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like this is one of these teachings that is so prevalent. Even to me as a Jewish person, I've heard it so many times that it's yeah. almost hard to like, it's hard to bring it back to life again. Yeah. I don't know. How do you think about it? How would you sort of bring some some new life into to something, a teaching that we've probably heard many times? Yeah. Think about this part. <laughs> no pressure though. Like, how no do pressure. You, how do you, yeah, resuscitate? Good luck, Bobby. Good luck. I mean, this, so one of the things that I've been trying to keep in mind as we read this text is that this passage really is the culmination of everything that has been happening into Matthew in Matthew mm. up until now. And what happens next is going to be the beginning of the passion narrative. And so Jesus is like, this is the thing, right? To which everything has pointed. Yeah. And so it takes you back to these parables that we've been working on and all these things that we've been doing. And the one that keeps coming back to me is the one we did about the wedding banquet and that guy who doesn't have the robe and gets kicked yeah. out. Yeah. And one of the things that we said in that, maybe came from the Bible where I'm collaborative, I can't quite remember, is you need to wear righteousness like your skin, right? So it's with you all the time. And that's the way I read this, is that these are people who are not calculating, I really want to spend eternity in the kingdom yeah. of heaven, and therefore I need to tend to the poor. Yeah. These are people who just tend to the poor. That's who they are. That's how they've taught themselves to be. They've, they've made it reflexive. So that they're not even conscious. They're just treating people like people because they're people. Yeah. And so they see someone in need and they help. They see someone who is sick and they, they visit. They see someone who is lonely and they spend time with them. And they're not, they're not calculating it. Right. Right. They're not wondering what's in it or, for me. Yeah. Yeah. They're not doing it to be a social climber. They're not doing it to earn their way into heaven. They just like, this is who they are. You know, you can expand that a little bit and say, you know, these are the nations. These are not necessarily Christians, although maybe they are some. But the thing that's the benchmark here is, did you have this kind of innate care for people, for people's humanity, for their dignity? Did you recognize the neighbor as a neighbor? And not did you, you know, pray the right prayer or go to the right church or do the whatever, the category is simply the way that you treat people. That's what this king, the king is looking for. So to me, that's just really, that's just really profound. And like, how do you, I guess one thing to decide that I want to do a clothing drive because I want to be a good person. Yeah. It's another thing to be the kind of person, to train yourself to be the kind of person who just does that because that's what you do. Because it's the obvious thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to think about. This is just sort of like a big. This is the the trouble that a trouble that I feel like all religious traditions have. But you know, your point precisely that these are not people who were doing it because they were trying to get something, but then to have this text basically saying this is what yeah. you need to do, or you're going to be thrown yeah. into the eternal fires. Is yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, it's just it, it's it's. It's just complicated for us as humans to sort of stay in that first space, as you're saying, and not shift in our minds to doing everything for that sort of 
Like it's not transactional. You know, it's not, yes. I need a, I need to check the box. Yeah. And I think that's important. And, you know, there's two different ways for me of inhabiting this text, at least two. One is what do I need to do if I want to spend eternity in the good place? <laughs> the other is how do I relate to people who are not part of my own tradition? To me, that's a much more useful way of reading this text as a Christian. It's, it goes back to the weeds and the wheat. You are not smart enough to know. Yeah. You can't tell the wheat from the weeds, and so you should stop trying. And this is sort of saying, look, you thought you had categories for how the king was going to judge about who belongs to the right community or who is in part of the right religion or who prays the right prayer or who's been baptized or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about people totally unaware of what they have been doing are being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because they care about people. And so it's a, it's a warning about judging other people based on some other criteria. I find that more useful for myself than sort of like, how, how are you going to play this thing so you get into heaven, Williamson? No, <laughs> I mean, no, I, would like, no, I, mean, I, would I like feel that like too. that, I feel like the latter is, is like, I would imagine, I'm really kind of projecting here, but precisely one of the challenges of being a Christian today is not taking exactly this teaching and warping it somehow so that yes. it becomes, you are doing it for an end. And the end yeah. is to get yourself into heaven. So you're not doing it just because it's the right, you know, it's, yeah. but it's really hard. It's, that's really hard because yeah. it, I would imagine that is, I would imagine that's really hard. It's interesting to say it that way, Amy. And I just, I mean, I know I'm talking about texts that are not our texts, but that, that garment text again, this is the thing, right? Is if you just put on the garment, when you think that wedding's going to start, you're going to get caught without the garment. So you just wear the garment all the time. And so maybe you start out wearing the garment because you really want to go to the wedding, but eventually that garment just becomes part of you. Mm. So maybe it's yeah. fine if your motivation at the start is I really want to get into heaven. Like maybe th- I don't know that this text is judging that. Yeah. But then eventually it just becomes like you never take it off and it just becomes part of who you are and what you do. And then you're no longer doing it for the outcome. I really appreciate that, that, Bobby. Yeah. That you can you can sort of create good habits and good impulses exactly. in yourself. Whatever whatever sort of like, you know, zero entry you need, <laughs> whatever on-ramp yes. you need to sort of make that your your default yes. way of being. I like that yes. a lot. Practice your way into mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amy, there's a question in here that scholars talk about. Jesus says, or the king says, one of the least of these who are members of my family, mm-hmm. the CEB has one of these brothers and sisters of mine, and so there's been a question about, like, what does that mean exactly when Jesus or the king says, part of my family? Who's he talking about? Did you read that in any kind of particular way when you read it? That's so interesting, Bobby. I mean, I did, I did settle into that verse, but not in that, not in that mindset. I settled into it sort of as... Try, I don't know, just again, like trying to squeeze more life out of that, like how is how can it be that taking care of this random person is like 
personally, intimately caring for Jesus himself? Like, what do Mm -hmm. you mean? How can that be? But that's not the question you asked. You asked a, you asked a sort of more like historical contexty question. Yeah. It's historical, but it's also theological. Mm. So what I mean by that is back in chapter 10, the very end, verse 40 and following, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, those who receive you are also receiving me. Those who receive me are receiving those who sent me. I assure you that everybody who gives even a cup of cold water to these little ones, because Mm. they are my disciples, will certainly be rewarded. In that passage, what Jesus seems to be saying is people who welcome followers of Jesus Mm -hmm. are welcoming Jesus. Mm -hmm. So if you read Matthew 25 that way, then what it says is the nations are being judged by how they treat Christians, followers of Jesus who are vulnerable in the world. Mm. And that's kind of interesting, right? And so there is a way for the nations who have no relationship with God directly still have a way into the kingdom of heaven by the way they treat poor and vulnerable Christians. I think that's important. Like, I think there's a good message there. Yeah. If you read it more expansively to say, well, when we talk about God's family, we're talking about everyone. Then what this passage means is everyone is being judged by how they treat the most poor and vulnerable Mm -hmm. and lonely Mm -hmm. of all of humanity. That is also a really beautiful message, but they're not, they're different messages a little yeah. bit. You know what I mean? They are different messages. Yeah. And so that my brothers, uh, uh, members of my family, or at least of these my brothers, has caused some interpretive controversy yeah. among people. That's interesting. <laughs> I want to say I like the more expansive reading better, but that's sort of beside the point. But it's interesting for me to think of in relationship to sort of the weeds and the wheat, like, I don't know if we can, if we can hold some question in our mind about who really is part of that, the family of, I mean, if, if you're saying people who are explicitly following Christian, you know, who, who identify themselves as Christians, then okay, that takes some of the question mark out of that. But right, yeah, I feel attached to the idea that we don't need to make that determination. Yeah. I think that's probably where I end up too. And there, you know, there's a kind of an, a Calva Homer argument waiting to happen there where, you know, if you're being judged by the way you treat poor and vulnerable followers of Jesus, how much more so should you also be treating well people who are mm. poor and vulnerable in general? I don't think that's a hard, like, I don't think that's a stretch beyond the text. I like the more expansive, I like the more expansive reading of it too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, Minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, 
and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. Bobby, should we see what happens if you um, haven't really been wearing your Let's do wedding it. robe in yes. the world? Yeah. It's not good. No. <laughs> but it is uh, symmetrical. <laughs> so it's just the flip side of things. Okay, so I'm picking up in verse 41. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mm-hmm. Bobby, I didn't bring this up in the in the previous section, but since it, it's mirrored here, it's, it feels, um, I don't know, underscored. It feels important. So this starts saying, you that are accursed— and the first mm. one had you that are blessed. Yes. And I wonder, this is a very uh, maybe sort of like Calvinist question. Are they blessed or accursed because of this behavior? Or are they blessed or accursed and that has caused this behavior? Or is that not an interesting question to you at this no, point? I think it's an interesting question. And I think it can be answered either of the ways that you have asked it. My own tradition would probably like to think, at least the old school version of my tradition, that some are blessed and therefore they live this way. Some are cursed and therefore they don't. I think Matthew actually is thinking of it the other way, Mm. which is everybody's got an option to live righteously or not righteously, and you're blessed or cursed based on how you lived not the other way around, even though that's not exactly my, my own theological tradition. Like to me, my reading of Matthew is what he cares about is how are you living your life? And then the reward or punishment you get is based on how you lived your life. So it doesn't make any sense to me to flip it in the context of Matthew. Yeah. Do you think that's right? Or do you read it differently? I mean, I, I theologically, yes. Yes. Yeah, I want to talk about the syntax of the sentence, but I also don't because I don't want to talk about <laughs> Greek. So we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I mean, so much of it is, is just sort of the the flip of the thing that we read before. Yeah. Can we talk for a moment about why people? So one of the things that I thought the fir- reading the first section was like, oh, this isn't that hard. Clothe yeah. the naked, give food to the hungry, give water to yeah. people who are thirsty, like visit people. This is not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> and yet it is hard. It is hard. So, why, I don't know, why don't we, why, why don't we do these things? And I was, so we, you know, we meet every month as the Bible Worm Collaborative and talk about this text and somebody pointed out that this, what this text says is when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. Mm, and that a high bar. <laughs> really changed my reading because I'm like, I do these things with some regularity, right? Yeah. Like I can name people that I have fed and clothed and visited. But if the bar is one that you haven't, <laughs> right, then suddenly... Yeah. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like every time, like on the way into work this morning, there was somebody at the traffic light holding a sign that said, uh, homeless need help. I, you know, pulled over into the other lane because I didn't want to talk to them this morning. Yeah. Like sometimes I would have talked to them, but today I didn't want to do it. I took off my wedding rope. And so when you start to think about it that way, then it it is, a, I mean, an enormously high bar. It's that, the same idea that's in the... Good Samaritan parable that we talked about in Luke that everybody is your neighbor and anyone in need of mercy is your responsibility. Like that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you could never live up to this, even though it seems like something that you could do. It's, and so, yeah, so one of my students in class the other day, we were talking about this text and they were, they just said, this text makes me so anxious because there's no way you could ever do that. How do you know if you've ever done enough? I'm like, I mean, that's, this was Martin Luther's problem that led to the whole doctrine of uh, grace, right? So I don't know quite what to do with that, but it is, the things are simple. The constancy of that life yeah. is hard. That's that's a really important, <laughs> that's an important detail. <laughs> yeah, that's a really important detail. Yeah, you have to be so fully oriented towards this way of being in the world that you are not distracted by any of the other 8,000 things that might feel more urgent or fulfilling or important at any given moment. The way I responded to that student, which is also, I think, how I respond to my internal worry is that we have also seen multiple times in Matthew that God's judgment of us follows our judgment of other people. And so if you, if you think about that guy who owed $7.5 billion and the king forgave it or or whatever, (laughs) and you think of every person that you've passed by and didn't roll down your window as something you should have done that you didn't do, then that debt can be erased simply by not holding other people's debts over and against them. 
And so there is, there is grace in this system, even in Matthew's kind of, this is how you should live your life. It's just a recognition that you don't live up to the expectation and maybe one never could. And so you do the very best you can and then you don't harshly judge others. And so there is forgiveness in this system. There is grace in this system. It's just not where it starts for Matthew, right? It, you, you start with the expectation or something like that. I, I feel like my whole reading of this section has really just sort of changed on a dime because, because of that, that point that someone in the Bible Worm Collaborative made that we're talking about one person. So actually this is not, yeah. it's not that it's not hard. It's actually that yeah. it's almost impossible. Yeah. But this is the bar. Yeah. No wonder people want to just go make sacrifices. Exactly. No, I mean, seriously, because then someone no. can be like, I need to schedule my day. Tell me what time I need to go do these sacrifices. I will do them. Yeah. I will say the things. I will show up for this, you know, whatever. That yeah. is not what this is talking about. This is a total yeah. reorientation of your life all the yeah. time, all the time. Yeah. The reason that I re- reacted that way was because I was just thinking where this person, these people say, Lord, when did we see you? Yeah. And so, and it reminds me of that passage in Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, belongs yeah. to me or whatever it is. And that exactly reminded me of those passages you're talking about in Amos and Micah and elsewhere, where people, they do, we want the- we All want kinds the of performance, religious liturgical solution. Yeah. Yes. The liturgical solution. Yeah. And this is not, this is not that. And so those people who are doing the right liturgical things- are find them surprised to find themselves on the outside. Because you shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised if we've read the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Bobby, is there anything you want, else you want to draw out from this section before we start moving towards concluding thoughts? I don't think so. Then what would you like to leave our kind and generous listeners with today? As usual... This text has become more complicated for me in our conversation, which I really appreciate about talking with you. I Sometimes this text is a little bit of a self-righteousness text for me. Mm. Like I kind of do these things, you know, more than some mm-hmm. people do. Mm-hmm. But the way that we've just started to read it now here at the end, I think is a really a challenge and a, and a good one that the bar is to become so accustomed to treating people like people worthy of dignity and care and respect that you just do it all the time and that you can kind of train yourself into that by doing it, you know? (laughs) So like Mm -hmm. when I, the first time I went to Mercy Church in Atlanta, I don't know, 10 years ago now, And it was such a strange thing to me. They didn't want me to do anything, really. They just wanted me to sit and talk to people. And I was like, that's not what I'm here for. Like, I'm here to to help. And they're like, no, you just need to sit and talk to people because they're like, they're people, you know? And I was like, they are people. And so then, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And so then I started doing it. And you just talk to people and you care about people and you learn to talk to people and care about people. And then suddenly you start seeing people as people worthy of dignity and respect and care as your neighbor, as your brother, as your sister, as your sibling. 
So this text, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's all it is. Learn to care about each other because people deserve to be cared for. There's a little edge to it for me of no matter how much you do that, you could always do more of it. And so it keeps me from relaxing too much and to say, well, this, what I do is good enough. It's always sort of seeking out the places where I am not responsive and to say, well, why am I not responsive? And is there a different way I could respond? So I like that about what the way we've read it today is it keeps the challenge out there in front of me. The other thing I like about it as a Christian is it keeps me from thinking like that Christians have some kind of particular insider status, which is kind of one of the ways that Christianity gets framed, you know, pretty often. Here, it's not that at all. It's that people who know that people have dignity and worth and need to be cared for, those are the people that God cares about. It doesn't matter if they knew they were doing it for Jesus or not doing it for Jesus. And so to me, that makes me a gentle, gentler toward people outside of my tradition to say, there's all sorts of people amongst the nations who are just like this and maybe actually better at this than I am. And, and so who, who am I to judge? Those are the things I'm taking away. I'm not entirely sure those two fit together coherently, but that, that's no, where I am I right think, now. I think those are beautiful and beautiful and true. And I think, I think that's a successful reading of any text. You can find what's beautiful and true in there. What do you see when you're reading this text today? You know, I'm kind of, I feel attached to the way that when Jesus is speaking to the second group, or maybe the first group, maybe to both groups, he says, uh, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Mm. And I've been... I've been trying to dig into like how how is that really true? Like <laughs> like how it I don't know. I think that I as like my my sort of way of being spiritually or religiously at the moment right now at least is I I I seek a sort of moments of like quiet intimacy with the divine that sometimes feel really incompatible with the messiness of human society. <laughs> and, and I certainly see the importance of, 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 you know, serving human society, human people, maybe I shouldn't say society. Um, but it sometimes feels at like, like it's doing something different. Like it feels like a very different kind of, activity like I'll go do that and that's my work and then I can go and be happy in a quiet sanctuary and I think what that line offers me is the idea that you know almost the way that I feel like as a parent with my children out in the world like there is a real true intimacy in caring for people who are part of creation because they are part of you know, God's family and, and it, like that, that there is, you know, there, there is an intimacy, like it really is sort of an act of faith and connection to God and religion, even if it is not, you know, quiet and in a sanctuary and <laughs> liturgical and meditative. Um, 
I don't know, that line is helping me sort of bring together a little bit mm-hmm. my sense of doing good in the world and my sense of connection spiritually, which just sometimes doesn't fit with the chaos of mm-hmm. humans. Mm-hmm. We are a chaotic bunch. <laughs> that is that is true. Humans. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Amy. Spiritual connection is not my great strong suit. And so it is helpful to be reminded from time to time. As it is helpful to be reminded like, yeah, but don't forget the people, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And in this text, I love what you're saying there, that those are not two separate things for which one has to be responsible, but in fact, they can come together. They can come together. Bobby, we have been reading parables for many weeks now. That's Um, true. But next time we talk, we will be preparing a text for Palm Sunday, which actually takes us backwards in the text. We kind of have like abandoned the plot line of the text for a moment here. (laughs) So we can sort of be in these teachings. We're going back to the plot line. Um, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17, which is the triumphal entry. Yes. I'm looking forward to that conversation. It'll be interesting to be back in the in the plot. I feel like we've been a little bit outside time for a while. It is true. It's true. We really have for, yes, many weeks now. Yeah. Great. Well, I look forward to that, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks. You too. I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next week when we'll jump back just a little bit in honor of Palm Sunday to read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Until then, keep on digging.